everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. Glad you're joining me today. Hope you've been having a great week so far. Today's episode features Chad Harrington and Jim Putman. They're going through part three of their series that's been airing inside of the Discipleship.org Collective, and it's about their brand new book, The Revolutionary Disciple. This episode is titled The Church Fear, Walking Humbly Under Authority in the Church. And I can tell you myself that this book is awesome. I just started reading it a few days ago, and it's mind-blowing and humbling and convicting, and it's just awesome. So make sure you go grab a copy. You can go to therevolutionarydisciple.com to purchase your copy today. Before we dive in, I want to remind you that we do have a promo going on. Our National Disciple Making Forum is coming up pretty soon. It's November 4th and 5th, and if you use the promo code PODCAST, all lowercase, when you're purchasing your tickets from discipleship.org, you will receive a 50% discount. So that's pretty awesome. So make sure you take advantage of that. All right, let's jump in and hear what Chad and Jim have to say in part three of their series about their book, The Revolutionary Disciple. I'm Chad Harrington with Jim Putman here, and we are releasing a book called The Revolutionary Disciple, Walking Humbly with Jesus in Every Area of Life. Um, you can It's a discipleship.org resource. And Jim and I have spent, you know, the last couple of years writing this book, getting it ready. And we believe that it's for such a time as this. We didn't necessarily know that it was going to be so relevant when it came out. Um, but there's a lot going on in our culture with regard to, I mean, people are using the word revolution. People are talking about on the right and the left politically. I, you know, I was flipping through the news and I heard the word revolution on both sides of the aisle. Um, and I was like, okay, this is really a topic. Um, but what we really want to focus on is Jesus, the revolutionary. And so we make the argument that Jesus, number one, was a revolutionary because he was humble and what that looks like, not in spite of his humility, which Dallas Willard makes a similar argument in his book, The Allure of Gentleness. But then also, Jesus is the revolutionary disciple. It's funny to think about Jesus being a revolution, being a disciple at all. Isn't, aren't we the disciples of Jesus? But it's interesting, you know, Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. And then we also see that Jesus obeyed his parents. He went to the synagogue. He participated in the Jewish feasts of his time. He learned. Well, what's the essence of a disciple? It's a learner. And so um, we can think of Jesus not just as our master and teacher, but also as a disciple. So how was he a disciple? And how was he a revolutionary disciple? And so we believe that Scripture has a really strong message here, and we just wanted to channel that through our voices for the church today. And we're grateful to discipleship.org that we can talk about that. And in the book, we describe, and Jim, this is one of the, the, I think, great values that you and your team with Real Life Ministries and the Relational Discipleship Network that you guys teach that's super helpful for disciple makers, which is the five spheres of discipleship. So we use those five spheres as a framework to talk about how to be humble like Jesus. We, we need humility in our world today. Well, what does that look like? And so what we're going to do today is focus on what does it look like to be humble in the church? And so, Jim, I just wanted to kind of open up the conversation. Let me remind the listeners, this is our third episode about the revolutionary disciple. And the five spheres go like this in this order. The first sphere, and so it's kind of centrifugal, the first sphere is abiding in Christ. You know, if you're not abiding humbly in Christ, you're not submitting to Christ. You're not a disciple of Christ. It's first and foremost, number one. Number two, though, is the church sphere. And we use Ephesians as a framework. You know, we kind of follow the order that Paul lays out and describes humility as he goes through the, through the book of Ephesians. And after abiding in Christ, which he focuses on, especially in chapters one and two, Paul goes into the church sphere in chapters three and four. And it's like, whoa, wait, okay. But why doesn't he go into the family first? Because a lot of times that's how we think. 
you know, abiding in Christ, then it's our family, then it's the church, then it's the world. So it's actually abiding in Christ, then the church as sphere two. Sphere three is abiding in the church and uh, living humbly in the church sphere, then the world sphere, and the fifth sphere. The, the home sphere, sphere and then the world sphere. It's the home yeah, sphere you, and then the world Yeah, sphere. you guys, church sphere, home sphere, world sphere. Yep. Okay. We, we didn't write a book about it or anything. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, you, 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 I knew what you meant, but you, yeah. you said church, church, then world. And you meant home. But yeah, it goes in that order. Yeah. So it's abiding in Christ, the church sphere, the home sphere, the world sphere. And then the fifth sphere is the spiritual realm, which is kind of like an all-encompassing sphere, almost like a different dimension. Today, we're going to focus on the church sphere. So, Jim, I wanted to talk with you about and, and hear from you why it is that the church sphere comes after abiding in Christ instead of the home sphere right after that. Yeah, I think we mentioned this in the last podcast as well. Um, all, all I know is when I look at scripture, that's the order Paul uses. So I, in my mind, if all scripture is God breathed, then I really do believe everything God does, he does for a reason. I start to say, rather than dispute what Paul did in his order, I start going, what would be his reason? Why is God doing that in that order? And I think it's because we were told to, to baptize people and to disciple people. In that discipleship environment, the family of God, um, we are learning about ourselves. Who, what is my identity? Who does God say I am? Who does God say that other person is? What does God say about relationship? It's in the discipleship environment that I learn what God says the home sphere ought to look like and the work sphere and the spiritual realm. If I don't have an environment where I'm learning this, not just didactically through, through teaching, but experientially through modeling and relationship, then, then there's not a real change that's happening in that church sphere that's going to affect the home sphere. And so then what's their home sphere going to look like and how important is the home sphere? Well, remember, Paul's writing to people in Ephesus who, I mean, there were some Hebrews there, but these are Gentiles. So what, what did they learn in their home? What did they learn in their culture about home and work? What did they learn about community identity? What did they think? Well, unless there's an environment where people are being you know, reformed according to God's word, transformed by the renewing of their mind in relationship, they're going to, they may go to church and learn some things didactically, uh, intellectually, but they're going to pass on what they were given by their parents. Right. It's almost because, like you, you, you just do what's the easiest thing at the time, unless you have experience doing something different. Right. And when you talk to people, it, when they have marriage issues, right? The number one thing they'll often hear, you'll hear even from Christians is, well, my dad did this. My mom did this. This is what I learned, right? And they, it, it, and the reason they that's first and foremost is first because family relationships are so important and they do shape your life. But secondly, um, they, they, the, the relationships they had in church the way they were taught church, the way they were taught things wasn't as powerful as the home. And the home oftentimes doesn't look anything like what, what we were supposed to have learned in church because there wasn't anything more than just a kind of an intellectual transfer of information. Right. There wasn't a lifestyle that changed the home. And, you know, what I wanted my kids to say is this is what I learned from my parents who learned this in discipleship from God's family. Right. Now, now what the, in, in Paul's saying, let's, this is what love looks like in Ephesians. This is what community looks like in Ephesians. This is how you deal with conflict. This is how you, this is how you, you bear with each other's faults. You look past faults. You love one another. You, you, you do all these. And where were you supposed to see that and learn that? Who's the model for that? The people in the church, not necessarily the models they had had in their past. Right. Well, and it's like we didn't necessarily have a good model growing up like any given Christian. But even if you did have a good model, 
it's not like each father and mother are the equivalent of Jesus Christ and we're discipled perfectly by them. We need, we need different perspectives. And one of the things that I really love about um, one of the stories we're going to get into is um, that there's, there's certain things you can learn that only some people have to teach and have it, you know, the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, what's our village? It's the church. You know, in other words, we're a city within a city and we need each other, not just to get to heaven one day. We need each other to become mature, which is what discipleship is. And so Jim and I talk in the book about not only what humility looks like in the church, but I think it goes back, you know, a step further. And it's like, what is the church? And Jim, if you would talk a little bit, one of the things that you do, if you talk a little bit about the importance of defining church, one of the things that has been really helpful for real life ministries, the relational discipleship network, and there's so many pastors and leaders that you all have had the opportunity to train is simply aligning based on definition. And I think before we get into what we will get into today, which is authority, submission, and what humility looks like in the church, we have to kind of take a step back and say, what is the church? Because if we don't define it right, you know, I'll let you get into that. And then um, whose church is it? And then we can frame the discussion, I think, properly. So talk to us, Jim. Well, remember, in, in my view of discipleship, God comes to us wherever we're at. We're so we're so far away from the design. We've sinned, missed the mark. We're out there in the lost land. And he says, I want to save you. Right where you are. I want to forgive you. But part of that is you have to accept that you're lost. You need to be saved. And you've got to follow me back to the design. Discipleship is the process of leaving where, we, where Jesus finds us and following him back towards the design. And so when, when we talk about the church, Jesus said that uh, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus, Jesus's definition of the church is that he's the Lord of the church. He's the king of the kingdom. He's the creator, the sustainer. And human beings will always get off course from the design left to themselves. Their, their compass, their internal compass is broken. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that we have to do is go, how did Jesus define the church? What was his idea of the church? He, God has no obligation to bless a church. He only has an obligation to bless his church. So what we have to do is go, when Jesus sent out his disciples with the church in mind, what, what it was the church? What did it look like? What was a disciple? What was the methodology Jesus used to make disciples? He, he's the one who gets to set the terms. Part of being a disciple is humbling myself before Jesus and letting him def- define it. And I submit to his design. So um, as, a, as a church goes, you know, you've got the Greek words, the ecclesia, and those are all just words. But what did it look like to live it out? And you see Acts 2 given to us as a model of what the church, Acts 2, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They, they met together from house to house and in the temple courts. They, they prayed together. They took communion together. They sold their possessions and goods to, and gave to one another. Big group meetings, little group meetings, one-on-one meetings. There was leadership submitted to the apostles' teachings, but to the authority that God had given them. And so part of being a, a Christian is to say, I will allow God through his delegated authority to to rule my view of whatever he has uh, set the standard for, whatever he has designed. I'm not going to trust in my own understanding. I'm not going to trust merely in human understanding. I want to know what God wants, and I want to submit to that. I've done my own way long enough. That didn't lead to where it was supposed to. I've listened to the world a lot. I don't want their view. I want his view. So God's church uh, is set up very clearly. In scripture, uh, there is doctrine and beliefs. There is lifestyle. There is authority, delegated authority in the church to elders. Um, there, every Christian is a disciple. There is a definition of a disciple. 
There is the lifestyle to be lived, the mission to be given and accepted. All of this is what it means to be a Christ follower within the church. Right. And when we come to Christ, it's not this me and Jesus mentality, which is what I think a lot of people understand the discipleship journey to be. It's kind of like, okay, I'm converted to Christ. And really, I have given my life to Christ. He's my Lord and he's my Savior. But somehow, and probably from an, an underinformed gospel and maybe a lack of holistic biblical teaching, is the church. Yeah, so, if you if you say I, Jesus, I, 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 Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, but then you say it's me and Jesus without the church, then I'm going to say He is not your Lord and your Savior. Right, because it says that Christ in Ephesians chapter five, Christ is the head of the church. Yeah. Well, if He's the head of the church, and you're not in the church. Well, then you're rebelling against His authority. You're yeah, yeah the Hebrews says, "Do not forsake the gathering together of the believers, as some are in the habit of doing." Right. The church was God's idea. Now, there's a lot of churches that didn't live according to his design. It got far off, controlled by men, ego, misinformation. And though it called itself the church, it didn't look like that church. And therefore, I understand why people have been hurt in all that and 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 have, have been, you know, it's kind of like, hey, I was hurt. My parents got divorced. It was terrible. I reject marriage. No. You can accept marriage as God defined it. You can reject the form of the marriage that you saw, but you don't get to reject marriage because marriage was God's idea for the context for which sex and multiplication would happen. And so you can, you can say, okay, I'm not going to get married. God gives you the option to say, I'm not going to get married. I'm going to remain single. Okay. Right. But you don't get to say, I want sex without marriage. God's the designer. You don't get to say, I get Jesus without the church. Uh, you don't get the right to say that. He's Lord. So what does he say is, is the right question. Right. And like you said, in Acts chapter 2 we and 4, among other places, we get a vision for what the church looks like. So in the book, The Revolutionary Disciple, Jim and I lay out, our de- we take a whole chapter and just say, okay, what is the church? And there's this sense in which the church can look a lot of different ways. I think it needs to go with saying that Jesus only used the word church in the gospels three times. And it's like, wait, hold on. Really? Yeah. And then he said the word, you know, disciple and kingdom many, many times, but it, in a sense, the, I think the reason, and Hans Kung talks about this in his book called the church. I think in one sense, the reason is because He was focused on the seed, which is the gospel and the kingdom. And then he appointed people. He appointed Paul. He appointed the apostles to form the church with the the gospel and with the kingdom, uh, the kingdom mindset. And so there is freedom. We need to say that there's freedom. You know, do we use a simulcast or should we have all pastors in each location? It's like Jesus didn't come and say, here I am. I have come to save the world. And by the way, you need to show up every Sunday at nine o'clock, have three hymns. Then you can have a prayer and sermon, communion, one closing hymn, an altar call, and you're done. He didn't say any of that. And it's actually kind of shocking how little Jesus talked about the church because of how big of a deal it is. And so that's where his delegated authorities come in. So I think it's really important to well, say. Again, that's important, important though, because a lot of people believe in the red letter version of the Bible, right? But Jesus said, I, I, there's much more I'm going to tell you. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and he will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I've said to you. His plan was, you know, to, to do a certain amount of the work. And then he said, it's better that the Holy Spirit comes. And I go, and here's what he's going to do. And so that's why, you know, Scripture says all scripture is God breathed, right? That there was more coming and there was an end date to that, right? And so um, that's where the, that's why the Holy Scriptures have been our standard. You don't add to, to what's been done. You don't take away from what's been done. And so it's important that, that Jesus gave them delegated authority and told them that more information was coming and it did. Right. 
Yeah, and I think that we can't separate that out. You know, um, in Matthew chapter 16, as you brought up, Jim, Jesus says, this is my church. And, uh, you know, he says to Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. So first of all, it's Christ's church, not ours. He defines it. But what that means is, is um, it's not just this me and Jesus thing like we've been talking about. In other words, one of the most common things that I've heard people say is, well, I just don't connect with God at church. Where I really connect with God is in the woods. You know, being in nature, I just feel so connected. It's like, you know what? Me too. In fact, I love going on retreats, long hikes, all that stuff. There's something so great about God's creation. But that's not God's own way to ultimately connect with us. Obviously, that's one of the ways. It's called general revelation. It's called Yeah, creation is beautiful and enjoyable, but that is not church. And that's a huge lie. And it comes in many forms. I I connect with God at the beach. It's like, you mean you enjoy going on vacation? (laughs) And so it's this kind of piece of humble pie we all have to eat, which is submitting to Christ church. Even in that statement, okay, it makes the assumption that the church is for me. I connect. Right. At the forest, in the for, in, in the trees, you know, hunting or whatever. Well, to die to yourself um, and to say, no, it's not about me. He who finds their life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not just what I get. It's that my job is to go be with other people and be a reconciler, a minister to others, to let them minister to me. There's something that happens in Christian relationship that doesn't happen as an individual. There's something that happens in your individual quiet time that doesn't happen with other people. Right. It's not, it, you don't get to pick, it's not a smorgasbord where you get to pick whatever you personally like and form your own version of the church. It's, it's we go, Lord, when I go to church, I may personally worship in my quiet time and devotion because I'm, I'm, I'm an introvert. But when I go to church, I'm not just there for me. I'm there to serve others, to meet others, to minister to others. And I'm there to learn. In fact, I think Jesus intentionally put people in positions where they had to be uncomfortable to move them away from this self-absorbed, it's all about me sort of lifestyle. I should press into places that are contrary to my own desires. I should press into ministering to others. And when and, and you know, one of the things people say is, well, I've been hurt in the church. That's why I have that view. When, when do, where does the scripture ever tell us that you're not going to be hurt in the church? <laughs> it, wherever there's people, they hurt us. But our love covers over a multitude of sins. His love for us covered over our sins. He looked past our sins. Our love grows so we bear with one another. We look past the problems and there, our love is bigger than the offense they give us. That is a sign of being a Christ follower. God didn't just give us our identity. He gave them an identity. He loves them enough to chase and pursue them. He wants us to be ministered to by them and us to minister to them. Uh, And so going back to that analogy, I think we used it in the book where one of my big um, issues was um, I, I didn't like the church. I didn't appreciate what it was. I, uh, I, I, I was critical of all the hypocrisy and all the stuff. And, and um, my, my dad told me a story about, you know, um, uh, and at the time I didn't know it was a, an analogy, it, but it was a story kind of like David and Nathan, you know, this, this guy who's got the sheep or a sheep, one sheep and the other guy, that's what he did. He said, you know, uh, the four girls, uh, that my sisters and, and me and my dad's a pastor and my mom brings us to church and while she's getting out of the car, her dress is ripped. And she walks and doesn't even know her dress is ripped. And she's trying to huddle these kids in and, and the people see that my mom's got stuff hanging out that shouldn't be hanging out because she can't see it and she's not paying attention. And they start whispering and they start pointing and they start, you know, kind of laughing and, but one guy takes off his coat and goes up to preserve my mom's dignity and says, hey, you don't, know, you don't know this, but you ripped your dress. Here, take my coat, just wrap it around your waist, go on in the bathroom, I'll watch the kids while you go in there. 
Now, my dad says, now I hear about this and I see some people that are snickering at my wife, laughing at my wife, going, oh, that's the pastor's wife. I'm out of here. He said, how do, how do I feel about that guy who treated your mom that way? And I was like, well, you're mad. But how do I feel about the guy who took off his coat and went over and saw a need and met it? How do I feel about that guy? Well, you, you're like, thank you. That's, that's showing me honor because you showed my wife honor. So it's the same way. Church is broken. Our job isn't to point it out and act like, oh, you offended me. Our job is to go, this is the bride of Christ. Those people are children of God. It is messy. Why would I ever think it was otherwise? My job is to come be a part of the solution and make it more like what Jesus wanted rather than criticize it and leave it because it's not. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center, an auditorium for our main events, and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple makers. And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. I really want to talk about that authority piece because it's, it's Christ church and it's not like he calls us to a group of people to socialize, you know, a tea party or like, you know, let's just kind of form a new club or even a book club or whatever. It's not a social interest fraternity or sorority. This is the church. It has a unique dignity to it. And I want to paint a little picture, number one, for the authority piece. And then we're going to jump into Ephesians chapter four, because we really need to anchor this solidly in scripture to make that connection between Christ and the church with regard to authority. And so the first one that I want to say is, that Christ has appointed leaders and God clearly expects us to obey our leaders and submit to them. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 17 says it really clearly, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. And then he, he gives a reason. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account, obey them so that their work may be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so number one, it casts this really clear vision of authority and submission. And we're calling that submission piece part of humility. So we define in the book humility with four core actions. It comes from a heart of humility that God forms in us, but it manifests in very clear words and actions. Um, The words are confession, In other words, when a humble person confesses, but they also receive and they listen. So that's humility with regard to words. But then there's submission and service, which is the action part of humility. And so as a vital part of that, we're called to submit to leaders in the church. And we're going to talk a little bit more about being hurt. But I think Jim touched on that. There's no footnote in scripture that says, oh, but if you've been hurt, you're exempt from that. Yeah, he doesn't give permission when there's a battle, right? He doesn't say, hey, some, some of you say I follow Paul. Some of you say I follow Apollos. He doesn't go, well, break up then according to I like Apollo or Apollos. Apollos. When somebody's offended, and he doesn't say go ahead and leave the church. He says forgive. If there's a problem, go and resolve it. Uh, if, if, you know, it, he, this stuff that we do, you know, it's so funny. These Christians will hold so staunchly to the doctrine of the triune God or one way to salvation through Christ. But then they act 
like these commands about how to treat one another are optional. Yeah. How did that become lesser value? You know, I don't have to forgive. I don't have to go to you if there's a problem, Matthew, you know, 18. I don't have to, uh, you know, work it out. Um, Paul doesn't say if there's a problem, go find another church. He doesn't say that. He's saying there is one church, you know, work it out. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of what he ends with in this Hebrews 13, 17 verse. He says, obey them because, uh, so that it will be a joy, because if you don't do that, it's no advantage to you. In other words, it is for your good if you do this. Because just like there's pain in divorce, just like there's pain in a rebel in a church or a divisive member of any group, especially the church, because it's so personal. The opposite is also true. If you do stay in the game, if you work it out, the benefits are incredible. And we're going to talk about that in the fourth podcast, which is coming next. But I want to, I want to go to Ephesians 4 now, Jim, because it really hits on this unity piece. And then it frames it up in terms of humility and then launches us um, from the authority of Christ into the leader. So let me read this. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as a prisoner for the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord. In other words, he is a disciple willing to come under the authority of the Lord God most high. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, I'm, I'm walking the walk, and now I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, he's talking about our calling to Christ, and he immediately defines it not by love, although he does do that, but the first thing out of his mouth in verse two is, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all, which is awesome. There's this cosmic vision of who God is. And in that is embedded our role to live out the unity of God as the ruler over all we're called into unity. In other words, the kingdom life that we can live in the church is one of unity, and that honors God. In fact, it points to God because there is one body and one spirit. Then he says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So it's talking, this is an incredible chapter about the church. He starts with unity. He starts with, let, let's do our part. Let's bear with one another in love, which looks like humility. So we go from unity to diversity as the other side of the coin. In fact, I would call it the key to the first part is the second part. But he says in Ephesians 4 verse 7, to each one of us, grace has been given as we decide we want to have it as we figure out what we're really passionate about. No, as Christ apportioned it. In other words, there's authority and there's specific grace that Christ gives. And then it goes into this weird part about Ephesians that we always skip, but I want to hit on it because I think it's important. In verse eight, it says, that is, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train and he gave gifts to men. And verse nine gets a little weird. He says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. And we're like, so yeah, that's a little weird. Let's go to verse 11 <laughs> where it says it was he who gave some to be apostles and prophets, you know, but I think we need to hit that middle part and not skip over it because this is the authority piece. This is the ethos piece where it says that Christ has authority it says that he ascended on high and he descended to the lower regions. What does that mean? Well, it's a little bit of a riddle for, especially for Jews that directly goes back to the Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 132, 142, somewhere in that range. 
And what it describes is God, the victorious one. And as he's the conquering king, he leads people out of, um, basically out of the region which he's conquered. And the captives join the party. This is an authority piece of scripture. And it says, he led captives in his train and gave gifts to men. So in other words, the train is sort of like the kingly robe, right? So it's this vision of a king coming out of a conquered city. And instead of abusing the people following him, he turns around and he gives gifts to them. In other words, welcome to the kingdom. I am the conquering king, Jesus says. And it says, he who descended. So it's, if he ascended on high, then he also descended to the lower earthly regions. In other words, at the very end of verse 10, it says, in order to fill the whole universe. So it's this cosmic king. That's, it is he who gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So we need to understand the who before we can really understand the what we're called to with regard to diversity in the church. And so it's like, wow, a cosmic king is giving gifts. Well, what are these gifts that he's giving to people? The gifts, when you analyze the Greek construction, the simplest reading is, it is him who gave people. In other words, the gift is people for the people of God, the church. And who does he give? He gives leaders. He gives apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So God has delegated his authority. And what that means is he, he takes his authority, his cosmic whole universe authority. And he says, I am apportioning that to specific individuals in the church and they have a role to play. And that role is to equip people for works of service. And so in verse 12, it says, that he gave these people in order to prepare God's people for works of service so that we can all feel really good about ourselves and wait until Jesus comes back. No, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the experiential knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This is the beautiful vision of the church. And the linchpin is coming under the authority of Christ so that he can accomplish his goal in the church, which is our unity and our maturity. But it won't happen if we don't submit to that authority. In other words, if we're doing our own thing or we're in the group, but we're not coming under the directions and the leadership of the leaders of God's church. It's just not going to work. Jim, you talk a lot about the importance of team unity. And so I wanted to hear from you, you know, more about how leaders are called to be humble and how that leads to unity. Well, even prior to Ephesians 4, you're reading in Ephesians 3, he says that the wisdom of God is revealed in the church, right? So God's wisdom, when the church works correctly, as he, as he designed it, um, brings glory to God. But when God's church, you know. And Jim, I just want to say, it says that in Ephesians 3.10 that you're talking about, it's not just that he reveals the wisdom, that the church reveals the wisdom of God. It's that the church reveals the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities. It goes back to that authority piece. In, in other words, what that means is, is it, there's all this stuff about authority on both sides of it. And if we want to gain any ground for the kingdom, if, in other words, if we want to take ground against evil authorities uh, in the spiritual realm, it's by coming under the authority. Yeah, so when we don't uh, allow God to dictate the terms of the church and play our role in it, going back, you know, it affects God's glory. And whether so many people have rejected the wrong Jesus, yeah. if they could see Jesus for who he really is and the church for what it's supposed to be, uh, I think they think he's amazing. But unfortunately, because we refuse to be discipled, 
in in the because the, the the pastors, teachers, apostles, prophets forget where they got their authority and what their authority is for. Uh, they turn off or don't prepare believers in that church. Church doesn't look great. If the pastors try to equip the saints uh, for works of service, but people refuse to be equipped, refuse to be a servant, works of service. They, they, they're willing to do something so they can be elevated. No, equipped God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ is built up. See, I, I use this analogy. A lot of Christians, if I were to make a church building representing a church out of clay, most people come up and they grab a handful of and said and say, I need the church to be there for me. And I grab it. Right. And I'm taking pretty soon. Everybody grabs something and there's nothing left. Uh, and, 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 and we're all takers, we're consumers, mm-hmm. but our job is to equip the saints for the works of service. The body of Christ may be built up. Yes. There's things that we take, but we also grow to, to give and, and there's a give and take in community that brings about God's glory. When we come underneath the authority and understand what the church is supposed to be. And when the church acts that way, then when I go home, right. And I'm the, I'm the dad. What I learned about leadership is I'm equipping people. I'm serving people the way Jesus did. I'm giving gifts to them rather than taking from them. I don't just save them, but I, as I'm leading them and and passing out gifts, leadership, when Jesus is the model, changes the way we lead at home. Christ saved people. The husband is to love the bride or the wife as Christ loved the church. Yes, he leads, but what kind of a leader is he? Well, he learned it from Christ. He sees it from the leaders in the church. Now, when he goes home, because he's seen this, experienced this, that there's humility before the Lord, humility before leaders. Leadership's role is to give and to serve, not to take and control. And it changes every other part of your life when we come underneath the authority of Christ and he is our model of the things that we're, and then when I do serve, Jesus is also the model. What kind of a follower should I be that allows myself to be equipped? Like Jesus, who is humble and, 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 and submitted himself to the, to God, even though he was equal to God, he became a servant, Jesus abiding in Christ, coming under his authority in, in the church changes everything. Yeah. Except People reject it. And so I think one of the things that makes me really sad, Jim, is when people forget that, hey, God is for you. A lot of, I think a lot of Christians that are considering deconstruction or they're on the fringe or on, they're on the edge or maybe seekers that aren't really sure about it see God as some sort of curmudgeon who's like, I'm going to make you, there's rules to follow and I will make you it. It's going to be no fun, but it's the right thing to do. When the real God, like you were saying, a lot of people have rejected the wrong Jesus. It's not the real Jesus in scripture. The real God says, I'm the best thing for you. And he's right. He's right. And he's good. It doesn't feel like it. You know how Hebrews 4 talks about, Look, all of our fathers disciplined us and we respected them for it. You know, going back to Proverbs chapter three, he's like, when God disciplines you, it's so that your life can produce the fruit of righteousness. You know, as a parent of two now, um, we just had Joshua, our youngest, five weeks ago. And we've got a three-year-old, Emma. And I'm telling you what. It's no fun to discipline them. Obviously, I'm not disciplining Joshua for five weeks. Um, But it's no fun to discipline Emma. In fact, it's painful. I think all parents know that. It's not fun, number one, for us. It's pain. So it's worse than not fun. It's actually painful. And then they're suffering too. Well, why do we do that? It's the same reason God disciplines us. (laughs) And I'm not saying that he disciplines us with the church. I'm just saying it takes discipline and it's painful and it feels hard. It's called life in the church. And I think coming under that authority is the hardest piece for people today. 
And so let's talk about the authority. And number one, this is what I want to say. I want to say that authority is like a cuss word right now. It has been for a while. You know, back in the early 2000s, it was like, we're moving into an age of postmodernism. It was kind of this buzzword. It's like, yeah, we are. And it's not going away anytime soon. In fact, in a lot of ways, we're, we're going deeper into the postmodern mindset. Just like modernism, which, you know, is also known as the Enlightenment, lasted for hundreds of years. And we haven't necessarily come out of that. In fact, that's kind of one of the deals. Postmodernism is not necessarily the opposite of modernism. It's a rejection of modernism. And what I mean by that is that um, there's there's three core things that postmoderns reject. So I think it's important to talk about that. Um, you know, and one of them is authority. And so I think we're really not just talking about how do we follow Christ? Like what, what's God's plan? We're also fighting against the dominant mentality all around us in the West and beyond because the West impacts really the globe now that we're a, a global, you know, with technology, everyone's kind of connected instantly all over. And so I think the first thing I want to say is that we're fighting an uphill battle because authority itself, even good authority, is rejected almost carte blanche. Like, oh, you're in charge, are you? It's like, okay, no, let's let's rip you down. Let's let's tear you down because we're all equal. Well, what is equity in, in <laughs> what is equity in the Bible? Well, we got to let Christ define that. And so that's the first thing I want to say is that as we look to real life in the church and we say, we quote scriptures like obey your leaders immediately, like you've said, Jim, people will be like, well, I've been hurt. And, and it's not just that. There actually are abuses of power. Um, people, you know, leaders have the three core sins of sex, money, and power. And so it's not just a philosophical battle that we're fighting. It's not just difficult to actually submit to authority, but we're doing all that in the context of real pain, real hurt, past, present, and future. So Jim, I want to I want to hear your heart, man. What some of the conversations we've had even in the last couple of months about leaders who are attacked because of their either mistakes or sins and they're right sometimes they're they are mistakes. Sometimes they are sins. Sometimes they're grave sins. But what does what role do we have when our leaders fail? Well, I would say a couple things. Humility says I can fail too. So before I get on a high horse, I need to be constantly reminded that this is possible for any one of us. I mean, you know, there are circumstances and things that could happen to me. That could lead me there. And when you don't think so, you're walking right into the devil's trap. Absolutely. Right. Secondly, I would say, um, as a Christ follower, I do what I do. And I've been hurt by leaders. Right. I do what I do because Jesus says so. Not because I got what I wanted or didn't get what I want or deserve. So I have to look at um, uh, when I was hurt in church. And by bad leaders, do I reject the church? I may need to make some decisions. There are boundaries I need to make, but I, I don't have an option to reject the church. I don't get to act ungodly because the church has hurt, hurt me. What does God ask me to do in scripture when I've been wronged, when, when somebody's wronged me? And I need to take those into consideration. Uh, I can't ignore those things. Um, there may be some things I need to do, but I need to try to do it with the right heart in the right way. You don't fight like the devil for the things of God. Um, there may be boundaries, but you don't swing the pendulum. You don't let the devil take a wrong where, uh, where it leads to another wrong. Right. And so we're, we're reconcilers. We're peacemakers. We stay in the, we don't just run from the fight. We were called soldiers to fight. But we have to fight the right fight in the right way. And that's where a lot of times when I've been wronged, I needed somebody from the outside to speak truth to me 
not give me to tell me what I wanted to hear, but tell me what I needed to hear. And I needed to he- I need to talk about things outside of, of my own thoughts in isolation where, you know, it's Bible, by the Bible says you need wise counselors that you go to when you're, you're too emotionally caught up. Yeah. And, um, and so I just try to say to people, um, even mistakes that are made, you know, like with Joseph, right? What, what you meant for my harm, God meant for my good. If you stay in the game, God can teach you things. He can be involved and he can work you through that rather than running. There's a time to run, but don't run if God didn't say run, right? Stay there. Learn what God wants to teach you. He makes us strong like a good coach, makes you strong by making it hard on you. I run people to death because it's only in running people to death in wrestling till they're ready to puke that you gain endurance. If And when we're, we're just run from any sort of thing that happens, it's uncomfortable or painful. We're falling right into the devil's trap oftentimes. So I would just say you're going to be hurt, expected. Disappointment comes from that, on that expectation. Sometimes it's Evil, sometimes it's misperception, broken filters, misunderstanding. We live in a world of brokenness because of sin. We no longer trust in our own understanding. We do, we go to scripture and we ask God how he wants us to handle it. We get wise counsel that are not emotionally attached to it or tell us what we want to hear because they're our, their mama bear, papa bear, whatever. And we go, Lord, what do you want? Help me not to respond with my feelings but to respond in submission to your way of dealing, even with tough things. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that is really clear in scripture, in fact, it goes back to the church passage. So Matthew 16 has like a hyperlink to Matthew 18 because Jesus talks about the church in both chapters. And what he says in Matthew chapter 18 has to do with authority. Um, And Christ says, look, if, if your brother sins against you, go to them one-on-one. Well, let's just stop right there. First of all, you know, we're not totally sure if it's a brother sins against you or if they just sin. Either way, it doesn't matter. If you see a sin of your brother or sister in Christ, and the first thing you do is go post about it on social media, write a blog or make a video about it, you're already missing it. Christ himself teaches us what to do when someone sins and it says, go to them. And Jim, you pointed this out. You reminded me of this when um, there was recently, you know, some accusations against a well-known leader. And I was like, man, that's tough. Like, I think that these there might be some truth to this. And Jim, when we talked about it, you're like, yeah, so like, yeah, maybe there is some truth to it. That's not the point. The point is how we almost in this influencer culture or to get a like or a view or a post share or something. We want to air other people's dirty laundry. And it's, I think, I think there's a, a point to talk about, maybe in generic terms, maybe with some specificity. I think there's discernment there. I think there's some place to talk about pain, hurt, abuse of authority. But the way we do it is so important that if it's not cloaked, surrounded, and topped off with humility and gut check following what's clear in scripture, we can really do some damage in the body. Of Christ. Well, I, w- I would say this. I have kids. You, you have kids now. You know that your kids are going to make a mistake, right? You know that someday in a marriage, if they get married, they're going to have a job, whatever, they're going to make a mistake. Where they make a mistake in that business or that church or whatever, how would you like your son or your daughter to be treated? Uh, just rip them to shreds, put it out there, embarrass them, humiliate them, gather in circles, talk about them, put it on social media, or lovingly protect them as much as you can, go to them in person for their good, love them. We've got to remember that even if a, a, a leader makes a mistake, God loves that guy. God wants that. That's his kid. He may need to discipline them. Mm-hmm. But is he disciplined because he hates them? Does he want everybody else to? You know, you think about how God said, you know, about uh, the Assyrians. I wanted you to punish my children, but you went way overboard. I brought my, I brought you against my people, 
Yeah. Because they were wicked and evil, but you didn't do what I asked you to do. You went far beyond that. You tried to, and God punished them for that. He punished the Assyrians, but now you're going to get, you know, so God may be disciplining people, but his purpose is always love. So how do we, when we do church discipline or we see something happen, why do we rejoice in that? Why are we like, yeah, see, you know, look at that over there. Is that, that's the devil's voice in that. It's pride to say, well, let me air their dirty laundry because I would never do anything like that. Even That's even I struggle with this even politically because I'm not a big uh, Biden fan, and honestly, I, where I liked Trump's stuff uh, as far as policies in many ways, I couldn't. He's just arrogant, and and so I'm I'm like, I want to rip him to. Sh- I'm like, you got to be kidding, Obama, whoever it is, you know, and I'm like, wait a minute, God loves that guy. Does he want me mocking that guy? Does he want me? Or, or does scripture actually say, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth except for that which benefits the other? Does that not apply for Christians when it gets to politics? Right. And I've been busted by that all the time. I've, I even had people say, well, it, when you get into politics, I mean, you put yourself out there. Well, it's true. But does that mean Christianity stops when they be? And, and I'm, I'm like, OK, God, help me to be humble and to see people the way you see them. They're image bearers. He he doesn't want to destroy them. He wants to save them. How am I, am I rubbing them in the dirt because of pride? Gossiping? Or am I coming to defense and seeing them the way God does? And that is convicting for me. And I am really, especially in this season of everybody's mad. And so how do I not just rip people to shreds publicly Versus do things the way Jesus wants me to do it. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, in the stages of grief, which I think in a lot of ways people are in grief of power struggles and things like that or abuse. You know, there's the anger phase. Well, the anger phase is not a good time to publish a podcast. No. It's not a good time to create a YouTube video. No. Let things settle down. It's okay to be angry. Look, you know, there's a way to process it, a godly way to process it. So you know, and that's kind of what Jim and I are saying. And we just want to say to you, if, if you've been hurt, you know, there's a way to do it. Seek God, but, uh, you know, above all, do it in love, which requires humility. And so um, we're going to wrap it up for today as we talked about being humble in the church sphere, um, the capital C church and the local uh, lowercase c church. Um, we've got a whole section on this in our book. Again, it's called The Revolutionary Disciple walking humbly with Jesus in every area of life. It's a discipleship.org resource. And what I want to say too is we would love for you to read this book. We believe that it can change your life. Um, It's based on scripture. It goes through scripture, but we apply it to our culture today and we run it through a lens of discipleship. And, And it truly is revolutionary, not only for you, but for your church. So if you're a church leader, um, we've actually created a whole suite of resources so that you can lead your church through the message of our book. Um, you can buy in bulk at a discount order um, through the publisher, but we've also got teaching outlines for a six-week sermon series through the book of Ephesians. We've created group discussion questions that correlate to the message, and then we also have short videos too. And we did all this because we really just want to equip you so that you can equip your church for this message about humility as a revolutionary characteristic of a disciple. So there's a link to the book and to this suite of resources for churches to go through in the description for this episode. And we would love for you to check that out. And we'll be back for one more episode on the uh, discipleship.org collective and on the podcast. And um, so we'll see you next time. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed that. And I will encourage you again, go to therevolutionarydisciple.com and purchase your book today so that you can start reading it yourself. I really hope that you will be coming to the National Disciple Making Forum. It's coming up November 4th and 5th here in Nashville, Tennessee at Brentwood Baptist Church. If you go to discipleship.org to buy your tickets and use the promo code podcast, 
all lowercase. You'll get 50% off. Don't forget about that. I would love to see your faces there, and I'd love to worship the Lord with you in person. It's going to be a great time. All right. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.